This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Thanks for joining me tonight. And uh, this is the last class in our series, uh, for this series, this season. And uh, hopefully we're going to end off, even though it's a bad topic, it's not a good topic. And hopefully it's going to end off being a very good topic. There's rather shame. And how, why? Because when things break, it's a sign of deeper symptoms. When things break and things are not going well, it's a sign of deeper symptoms. And we're going to discuss some of these symptoms today. What is going on? What do we do wrong? What can we fix? And this really applies to all of us. It doesn't just apply to Am Israel in general, which obviously it does. But it applies to each one of us in our own different ways. But let's go back to a little bit of history, a little bit of Jewish history. Uh, unfortunately, you know, Jews have got a, a very long history, which is good. But the bad part is a lot of bad in the, in the history. So we're going back to bad events. Uh, the Northern Kingdom of Israel, going back to 732 BCE. This is 2,732 years ago. We know Moshe Rabbeinu got the Torah around 3,300 years ago. Um, and here we are and in 732 BCE. And you had two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom of Israel, you had the southern kingdom of Judah. So the northern kingdom was 10 tribes. They broke away from the southern kingdom of Judah. They broke away from the grandson of King David. And they started their own kingdom, Jeroboam, Yeroboam, and Nebat. Unfortunately, the kingdom of Israel split into two. And now we're in the, the latter part of the northern kingdom. We're in the latter part of the northern kingdom. And what happens is this guy, Pekach. Pekach was the king of the northern kingdom of the 12 tri 10 tribes of Israel. Northern kingdom, 10 tribes of Israel, Pekach. And he allied his nation with the kingdom of Syria. Imagine, he allied his nation with Syria against the southern kingdom. Oh, this is terrible. Imagine, allying himself with the with the kingdom of Syria against, against their own people, against the southern kingdom of Judah. A terrible civil war, Jews against Jews. And he allied himself with the Syrians. And what happened is this King Pekach, not a good guy, he raided Judah, this the, the country of Judah, under the kings, the descendants of King David, killing mercilessly and plundering. The united forces of Israel and Syria eventually appeared before the walls of Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, and demanded its surrender. This is brought down in the book of Chronicles, the Rehamim, in, uh, number, in part two, chapter 28. You can look it up if you want to. It's part of our terrible history. And Israel is, uh, can you imagine, Israel continued to exist. Now what happened was King Ahaz of Judah. King Ahaz of Judah, also not a very good guy, not a good guy, his son Hezekiah was a big tzaddik, but he himself was not such a big tzaddik. And what happens is he appeals to our biggest enemies. Who are our biggest enemies at that time? Assyria. Assyria was one of the strongest powers at that time. The king was Tiglat Peleser. Tiglat Peleser, come and help us against the Syrians and against the northern kingdom of Israel. I'm going to send you lots of, of money. I'm going to send you gold, silver, the Benedictash. He emptied out the gold and silver, sent it to Tiglat Peleser. And Tiglat Peleser was only too glad to fulfill this uh, wish of the king of Judah. First, he goes and he conquers Syria, which is good, by the way. That's not bad. He conquers Syria, but that makes him even stronger. He conquered Syria. Then he came down to Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. He attacked Israel. He took Gilad and Galil, including all the tribes of Naphtali, and deported the people to Assyria. 
Israel, however, the Northern Kingdom continued to exist as an independent kingdom until around 12 years later, 730 BCE. 730 BCE, the Northern Kingdom of Israel ceases to exist. It was conquered by Sargon II of Assyria. Sargon II of Assyria conquers the Northern Kingdom of Israel. And they take all the Jews, it says 27,290 Jews from the capital city of Samaria, Shomron. Obviously, there are much many more Jews were taken into captivity in Assyria. And uh, a lot of them were brought back, the Torah tells us, by uh, Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, the prophet, brought back a lot of the, the uh, lost tribes. And the ones who did come back are known today as lost tribes. The lost 10 tribes of Israel, they're gone. We don't know who they are. They're probably mixed into the populations of uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and so on and so forth. So anyway, so Israel is gone. It's what caused the northern kingdom of Israel to be destroyed? And the answer is a civil war. Israel allied with Syria against Judah, against the, the southern kingdom of Judah. Amazing. So we see over here that the detriments of a civil war, Jews against Jews, terrible, but Russia will never know, will never ever know this idea of a civil war among us, but Russia will never know this in our time and not after our time. But Russia, we see this, the first consequence of a civil war is the loss of a whole kingdom of Israel, 10 tribes gone. 10 tribes are gone because of the civil war. And what happened is they, they appealed to an outside power. So uh, Northern Kingdom of Israel appealed to Assyria, Southern Kingdom of Judah appeals to Assyria. Syria and Assyria, they come, yeah, no problem, we'll come join you. Anything to, to beat Jews, no problem, we'll come and join you. Anyway, this, this same scenario repeats itself during the Second Temple period. Let's move on to the year 67 BCE. 67 BCE, not so long ago. Only 2,067 years ago, not much, not, not to a bit more because we're now 2023, it's hard to imagine. 2023. So at 23 years, you get to uh, 2,090 years ago. 2,090 years ago. That's it. 2,090 years ago, the righteous queen, Shalomi Hamalka, Shomsion Hamalka, she was the widow of not such a great guy, uh, Yanai Hameda, King Yanai. Yanai was one of the descendants of the Maccabees. So the Maccabees were Sadiqim. They originated originally with Sadiqim. They were a line of priests. Now, in Jewish law, priests are not allowed to be kings, but they took over the kingship, unfortunately. And Yanai Hamela, King Yanai, was a descendant of the priests, and he was the high priest. Some people say Yohanan, the high priest. And he was no other than Yohanan, high priest. And he was also the king of Israel, of Judah at that time. And he was the one who conquered the kingdom of Edom. Edom were, you know, descendants of Esau. Romans also a descendant of Esau, he conquers the kingdom of Edom, and it's the only time in our history, only time, we have to really repeat this, the only time in our history where Jews actually forcibly converted another people. Never happened before, never happened after, and it's the only time in history, Yanai and Mela conquered Edom, Edom were descendants of Esau, and it said, you know, the only way we're going to really conquer Edom is if we make them convert to Judaism. Now, you cannot make people convert to Judaism. Why? Judaism is hard enough, you know, if you're voluntarily born a Jew, how many Jews keep Judaism to the letter? You know, it's uh, can imagine converting people by the sword to be Jewish. And obviously it's not going to work, and it didn't work. And some of our greatest enemies were caused because of this conversion, this mass conversion by the means. One of them was a guy called Antipater, remember that name, and his son Herod. 
oh gosh, yeah, that's Herod. Herod the Great, so-called Herod the Great, renovated the second temple, wasn't such a great guy we're going to talk about. But anyway, what happens is that his, he dies, uh, Yanai Melech King Yanai dies, and his Sedeket wife, his wife was a big Sedeket, righteous woman, and we have a street named after her in Yerushalayim, Yerak Kodesh, called Shlom Sion Hamalka. Shlom Sion Hamalka is just off Jaffa Road. If you know Jaffa Road's main street in Yerushalayim, Rechov Yapo, and right off there is Shlom Sion Hamalka, named after this righteous queen, the widow of King Yanai, and uh, she ruled for like 12 years. It's like the heyday of the Maccabean period, uh, her rule. Amazing woman. Unfortunately, she had two sons. Well, it's fortunate, unfortunate. The unfortunate part is when you have two sons and both want to be kings, you're in trouble. We're in big trouble. The, the uh, oldest son, Hyrcanus, was appointed high priest. And when Shlomsion Malka died, he became the king. Now, unfortunately, his younger brother, Aristobulus, was not very happy about this. Aristobulus raised an army to fight Hercules. Imagine, Hercules against Aristobulus. Two brothers, the senators of the Maccabees, are fighting each other to be kings of Judea. Two brothers, unfortunately, tragic. So what happened? As in previous cases, what do they do? They can't beat each other. One wins, one loses, one wins, one loses. They can't beat each other. They do. They go and appeal to the nearest power. Who is nearest power? Unfortunately, the Romans. The Romans had conquered Syria. The Romans had conquered whatever it's Turkey today. It's a big, it was a big empire. The Romans had a massive empire. They're already in the north of Israel. So these two brothers sent delegations to who was the general of the Romans in the north? Pompey. Have you heard of Pompey? Pompey, the city of Pompey was named after him. Pompey was this great general who became the king eventually, Caesar. Pompey, and he gets delegated. He actually got three delegations from Jews. He got a delegation from Hyrcanus, who was the original king and the high priest. He gets a delegation from Aristobulus, the brother. Can you help us against my brother? Hyrcanus doesn't know what he's doing. And he gets a delegation from the rabbis. The rabbis say, don't listen to the previous two delegations. Put us in charge of Israel. Make the Sanhedrin in charge. Let's get rid of these rotten Maccabean kings and become in charge. So he got three delegations. And you know who he chooses? He chooses the weakest leader. The weakest leader was Hyrcanus, and he's a smart guy. He says, I'll choose the weakest guy, and this way I'll be the real power behind the throne. Pompey comes in. He comes into Israel. He comes into Judea. He comes into Jerusalem. He conquers the Beit HaMikdash. He kills like 12,000 Jews. No problem with the Beit HaMikdash. He goes right into the Beit HaMikdash. He goes into the Holy of Holies, but he doesn't do anything. Pompey does not do anything to Benedict Dash. He never ransacked the Benedict Dash. To his credit, what does he do? He left just like he came, but now he puts the weaker brother, Hyrcanus, on the throne. He puts Hyrcanus on the throne of Israel. Aristobulus, he captures, takes him to Rome, and he's paraded down the streets of Rome, the big loser. Aristobulus, the big loser. And uh, Hyrcanus taken in charge, but really, who is the power behind Hyrcanus? It's the guy I mentioned before, one of, the, one of the converts by the sword of Hyrcanus's father, his name was Antipater. Antipater, I don't know what his real name was. That's his name. We call him by Antipater. And he becomes the real power behind the throne of uh, this weak king, Hyrcanus. He marries his son, Herod, off to Hyrcanus's daughter, Miriam. Miriam. And uh, that's how the line of the Maccabees line was ended, basically, with Herod marrying the, one of the last Maccabean women, because Herod killed all the Maccabees.
Herod killed his own brother-in-laws and sister-in-laws. Everyone is, in fact, he wanted to kill his own children and he wasn't successful. He, you can imagine Herod was power hungry and he was also scared as a psychotic uh, murderer. We're going to talk about that. Okay. So can you imagine this is a second temple period. What causes the destruction of the second temple about 100 years odd years later is the two brothers fighting and they call in the Romans to help them. And never do that. It's like, you know, Hasvishalom. Hasvishalom never gets this again. But we see it today. We see some people in Israel calling out to, the, to Americans, be on our side, you know, the government is useless, you know, tell the government to stop. You see them reaching out to America, which is exactly our history. This is our history. This is our terrible history of brothers. Hopefully we never get to the stage where they fight each other and they reach out to a third power to come and help. This is a terrible, this is really the lesson of the three weeks. This is the lesson we have to really think about. In our time, who would think it's coming back, you know, we saw this when they left Gaza and there was a fight between brothers, but you know what? There was no fight. One side just gave in, gave in without a fight. Here again, we're seeing the same thing again happening. But here's what's why, because they, they're drawing America into this issue. And Biden is only too happy to uh, get involved in this issue. Hopefully, he'll never get to this stage. Anyway, so what happens? In 64 BCE, we said the Jews sent three delegations to Pompeii, Roman general to Damascus, because Hercules sent a delegation, then Aristobulus, and uh, then the son Hadrian sends a delegation, and Pompey comes in on the side of Hercules. He takes uh, Aristobulus as captive, puts him in Rome, and uh, he takes over Israel. He takes over Israel basically on the side of Hercules, and on the side of Antipater, and eventually on the side of Herod. That's how the Romans basically took over Israel without much of a fight. That's how they took over Israel. And this is one of the lessons of the three weeks. Let's get along with each other, not cause civil fighting, civil wars, and invite the strangers in to come and take over. That's terrible, terrible, terrible. Anyway, let's go back to history. We have a long history. Let's go back to the beginnings of the history of the Jewish people, B'nai Israel. Uh, I'm not going to go back to Jacob, Yaakov, because that's where the B'nai Israel started. I'm going to go back to Moshe Moses in the desert, the first years up in the desert, the second year in the desert, and Moshe Rabbeinu gets the, uh, asks Hashem if they can send spies to spy out the land of Israel. Hashem says, yes, you can spy out the land of Israel. And Moshe Rabbeinu gives very clear instructions to the spies. Unfortunately, chose an unwieldy number of 12 spies. It's very strange to choose. You know, He wanted to make sure each tribe had a representation. 12 stripes go to Israel and they spy out the land. This is 1300 BCE or so. There's an exact approximately 1300 BCE. The 12 spies go and 10 of them come back with a bad report. Israel's a bad place. It swallows its inhabitants. You know, some people are saying that today as well. It swallows its inhabitants and the giants are there. We will never be able to take it. The fruits are weird. They get brought back the fruits to show how big these fruits are. They're unnatural. It's an unnatural country, unnatural people. We can't take it over. God can't even take it over. And they came back and all the Jews started crying the night of Tisha B'Av. The first Tisha B'Av, we cried for nothing. Hashem says, you cry for nothing, I'll give you something to cry about. Never cry for nothing. A Jew should never cry for nothing. No people, should, no one ever should cry for nothing. Never, 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 never. We have to always look at the good in our lives. Never cry for another lesson. So civil wars, never. Crying for nothing, never. Okay, you want to cry, cry in prayer and pray to God, but never cry for nothing. 
Okay, the tears are wasted, just wasted tears. And they cause Hashem to say, oh, you're not happy. For no reason and you're not happy, I'm going to make you more happy. Terrible, terrible, terrible. So what happened is, Hashem says, 40 years in the desert, and the people under 20 are going to go into Israel, and all the women who never sinned, the women never sinned. The women, all the ages went into Israel, and under 20s would go into Israel, but 40 years in the desert, punishment for the 40 years of wandering, the whole generation, all the men are going to pass out, they're going to die out. That was the night of Tisha B'Av, and the first night of Tisha B'Av, where crying started. That's where the crying started. The second period of crying on Tisha B'Av was the destruction of the first temple in 586 BCE. So we said that around 720 BCE, the first uh, the kingdom of Israel was taken away. But the kingdom of Judah lasted another approximately 200 years. Baruch Hashem. And uh, what happened is the Babylonians come in and uh, they take over Israel. They don't destroy the temple yet. They give the Israel in the hands of the kings, the last kings of Israel who rebelled against the Babylonians, against the advice of Jeremiah the prophet. He said, just give in. They won't hurt the Benedictus. You'll, be, you'll have limited self-control, self-rule, and just pay their money, pay their taxes, and they'll leave you alone. But unfortunately, the last kings of Israel, Judah, did not, did not listen to Jeremiah. Terrible, terrible, terrible. They rebelled. They took oaths to the king and they rebelled against king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and he sends in his general Nebuchadnezzar to take and control everything, destroy the Beit HaMikdash, unfortunately, with a lot of bloodshed. So the Hurban Beit HaMikdash, the first destruction of the first temple, 586 BCE, the times of King Sidkiyahu, who he captured, and you know, terrible, I can't even talk about it, what he did to he blinded him, but first he killed his children. He saw his sons being killed. Terrible, terrible. Anyway, so the 10th of Tevet, which is why we fast the 10th of Tevet, the Babylonians besieged the city of Jerusalem, the first temple, and the siege lasted for two and a half years. Can you imagine? Besieging Yushalayim for two and a half years. That's how strong Yushalayim was. The walls, amazing. Two and a half years lasted. And finally, the temple was taken on Tisha B'Av, and thousands of Jews were slaughtered, enslaved, or exiled to Babylon. And that's how my family ended up in Babylon for thousands of years. We were in Babylon for, I don't know, 2,000 odd years. It's a crazy, crazy period. So it's more than 2,500 years. My family's in Babylon. So finally, my grandfather, great-grandfather moved to Israel in 1850s. That's amazing. Anyway, so that's the Horban by Rishon. Number three. Hurban Bait Shani, the second temple was destroyed. Unfortunately, 68 CE, or some people say 70 CE, on the 17th of Tammuz, the Romans broke the walls of Jerusalem. Now, why did they break the walls of Jerusalem? Because again, the Jews, you know, for, I don't talk about how bad, you know, <laughs> they're fighting each other, the zealots are fighting each other. Uh, they, they imagine they burn all the food supplies in Jerusalem, they have enough food to last for a couple of years. The zealots want to fight the Romans. It was a disaster. It was a disaster. It was a disaster. Jew against Jew again. Uh, if you want to believe the, the account of Josephus, it says when the Romans came to besiege Jerusalem, they found blood coming, trickling under the walls of Jerusalem. Who, who were the, who's the blood coming from? Jews against Jews fighting inside this. Hard to imagine. Fighting inside the city. They're fighting over the food supplies. They're, they're destroying each other's food supplies. Terrible. It's hard to imagine. Um, okay, so the two big guys, Bar-Giora and Yohanan of Gush Chalav, these two leaders of zealots, 
at each other's throats and they were both captured by the Romans. And believe me, the Romans did not spare them. One was thrown to the lions, one was crucified. I don't know, it was public, it was a public humiliation. Anyway, the second that was destroyed on the ninth of Ab, after desecrating the sanctuary, a terrible desecration of the sanctuary, the evil military commander Titus, who eventually becomes the, the ruler of Rome, the Caesar of Titus, destroys our second temple and the fire lasted, so it was mainly the fire lasted and was on the 10th of Ab. But we, we uh, keep the 9th of Ab, beginning of the destruction of the temple, as our remembrance. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed, sold into slavery or exiled. We, we can't even imagine what it was like. It says Rome was full of Jewish slaves. We can't imagine what it was like. You go to Rome, you want to buy Jewish slaves. Dirt cheap, going dirt cheap. Jewish lives were dirt cheap. The Gemara says, and Gitin talks about the destruction. It says, at first, the Romans said, you know, kill the Jews. Kill as many Jews as you want. Uh, we'll pay you. We'll pay a guy to kill Jews. Second, the second decree was, we won't pay you, we won't do anything to you. Third degree was don't kill Jews. So after they decimated as many, I don't know how many Jews died in it. You know, they say that the, the Jews, Jewish population of the Roman Empire was between 4 million and 7 million Jews out of 70 million people. You're talking about between 5 and 10% of the Roman Empire. And uh, today we're really like I don't know, 14 million. So imagine 7 million Jews in those days. We should have been today at least 300 million people, but the Romans killed them. It was worse than the Holocaust. I mean, in terms of percentages, it can't be worse than the Holocaust, but in terms of percentages of Jews that were killed, the Romans killed the most Jews. Why? Because the Jews never sat still. We always rebelled. We couldn't take the Roman rule. It was an idol, pagan rule, and they, they tried to change us and, and take away our Torah and break us, and we rebelled and rebelled and rebelled. So finally, we're going to come to the siege of Betar, which was the worst number four. So, uh, 135C, commanded 65 years later, 65, so the two rebel leaders against uh, Rome in the time of the destruction of the Second Temple were Bargiora, you can look this up, and Yohanan of Gushchalav, these are two main leaders of the rebels, the rebel group. Now, the rabbi said, don't fight Rome, and they were so right, don't fight Rome, you're not going to win, they're the, they're the power, superpower of the time. Just, you know, pay the taxes, put your head down and, and bite your teeth, bite your teeth. And mind your time, because we'll outlast them anyway. We outlast them. And even without loss, we outlast them. How much more so? We'd have just kept quiet. And anyway, 65 years later, another revolt, Bar Kokhba. Bar Kokhba comes along. Rabbi Kiva thought he was the Messiah. Mashiach is coming. He was a man. He was a superman. He could catch the the, the stones from the catapults, the Roman catapults, and throw them back at the Romans. And uh, Barakov was an amazing guy, but unfortunately, he was not the Mashiach. And the city of Betar, which is a massive city, today is being rebuilt. I think it's the same site. Today, they built the city of Betar, Baruch Hashem. Things are going backwards. I don't know, we're going back in history, but it's Hashem. And this time, we'll get it right. I don't know. We have to get it right. There's no, <laughs> we have to get it right. Thank God there's no prediction of a third temple being destroyed. Thank God. That's a good part of our prophecies. Um, the prophecies are always good. The prophecies now are good. Why? Because there's a prophecy of an ingathering, which is coming true as we speak. And, you know, I, I was speaking to my wife this, today. I've never seen Yushalayim has changed from, you know, I can't believe, I just can't believe it. I've been in Yushalayim for 
coming in and out every every year, every year for how many years? Um, 40, 50 years. And I can't believe how Yushalayim has changed. And not just change, it's changing as we speak. It's changing as we speak. The amount of building in Yushalayim, the new train systems are being built as we speak. I've never seen it. This, this city is flourishing. I don't know how it's a miracle. If you don't believe in miracles, just come here. Come to Israel. It's flourishing. Despite all the troubles and the news and this and that and all our enemies, surrounded by enemies around us, this country is flourishing, whatever they say. The only country in the world pushing back the desert. Hard to imagine, right? The only country in the world pushing back the desert is Israel. <laughs> Hard to imagine. The only country in the world pushing back the desert. With all the troubles, everything. It's a miracle. You walk around the street, building, construction, construction, craze, everything. Unbelievable. People bustling in. The buses are full and the stores are full and it's amazing. You can get whatever you want over here with all the troubles. And, the, and you know, everyone says, you know, the Arabs, the Arabs, the Arabs. But who's building the country? The Arabs are working like, yeah, they're, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they're working day and night to build Yerushalayim, to build this country. And not only that, we're running out of workers. So they're importing people from China and from Morocco now. They're importing workers to work this country and build the place. It's amazing, but just, and the price, they're just beyond reach. It's just, I don't know how, you know, who's coming in to buy these properties because the Arabs really can't afford it. Anyway, so let's go continue. So what do we have? We have the sin of the spies, number one. We have this, the first temple destroyed. We have the third, second temple destroyed. We have the city of Betar. In 135 CE, under Bar Kokhba, revolted against the Roman Empire, was crushed by the biggest general they had, the Romans had, because it was nearly a defeat for the Romans. Hard to imagine. The Jews nearly beat the Romans. Bar Kokhba nearly beat the Romans. And they had to send their best general, who was a guy called Hadrian. And how do I know Hadrian? I know him from England. How? Because if you go to the north of England, on the border, the old border between Scotland and England, there's a war. It's called Hadrian's War because Hadrian, the Roman general, was sent to Scotland to put down the Picts, who were the old Scottish people who were fighting against the Romans in England. Uh, can you imagine? He built the wall over there and they sent him straight away, go now to Betar and put down the revolt of uh, Barkov. He comes to Betar. And again, there's a terrible siege and it was crushed by Hadrian's and the Roman army. Over 100,000 Jews were slaughtered. Their bodies were left unburied. The Quran says it continued for two years until finally the Romans relented and allowed the Jews to bury the bodies. Uh, the miracle was the bodies never rotted. And uh, when the bodies were buried, they added a fourth blessing in the Brikat Amazon. If you notice, there are four blessings from the Amazon. There really should only be three blessings from the Torah. You will eat, you will bless, and you'll be satisfied. Three words would pin three blessings. The fourth blessing was added by the rabbis in the time of the, of the burial of the dead of Betar. And that was the fourth blessing. The long blessing, the fourth blessing. It was added. That's why you'll notice there's an Amen before the fourth blessing. The Amen signifies the end of the three blessings which are from the Torah. The fourth blessing was added at the siege of Betar when the Romans allowed the, the dead to be buried. So they thank, Jews were so thankful. We added the fourth blessing in the Betar. Amazing. Anyway, so that's the fourth, that's the fifth thing, the fifth thing that happened, that's four. So the fifth thing that happened was, around that period, also the ninth of Av, the holiest area, the Beit HaMikdash, was plowed over, like a field, was plowed over by uh, this uh, Roman general, Tinius, 
Rufus, who was one of the procurators, one of the violent procurators of uh, the, the Romans. And Jerusalem was turned into a pagan city. Its name was changed from Yerushalayim, Irakodesh, to Ayolina, Capitolina. I don't think I'm pronouncing it properly, but that's, it's similar to that name. And uh, the name Jerusalem was lost until the Romans were, we got rid of the Romans, Baruch Hashem. Anyway, so we, today we got Yerushalayim. We have everything now. We just don't have the Beit HaMikdash, but it's on its way. And uh, the Rambam says, Mashiach will build it. Rashi says he will come down in fire. Hashem will build it. You know what? Maybe it's better Hashem should build it. <laughs> Hashem's buildings cannot be destroyed. Bezrat Hashem, we will see this in our day, speedily in our day, Bezrat Hashem. Now, what else happened? There's other tragic events that seem to happen on Tisha B'Av. Number one, 1096, the first crusade started on the night of Av 1096, killing 10,000 Jews in its first month. Wherever the crusaders went, they killed Jewish communities. They gave them two choices, baptize or die. And a lot of most Jews gave up. But they were snatched children and baptized children. A lot of Jewish children were lost during the Crusades. And I don't know, this is accurate. I got a figure over here. 1.2 million Jews were killed by the Crusaders. That's a lot of Jews. That's tons of Jews. There were very few Jews left in the world after the Crusades. Maybe 1 million Jews after the Crusades. Um, in 1290, the Jews were expelled from England. July 18th, 1290, which was Tisha B'Av. Unfortunately, uh, other things happened as well. Let me give some more things. 1492, we know the expulsion from Spain. People don't know. Columbus was meant to sail on Tisha B'Av in 1492. And he had to delay his trip. Why? Because the ports of Spain were full of Jews fleeing from the country. The expulsion from Spain, 1492. Deadline was Tisha B'Av. Now, I can't, you know. That is not coincidence. These things are not coincidences. So there are those mentioned there were at least 250,000 Jews in Spain. The historian Juan de Mariano, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it properly, mentions there were 800,000 Jews in Spain. And 200,000 remained as conversos, the Spanish called the Marano's pigs. But we call them conversos, secret Jews. 200,000 managed to escape to Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia. That's, you know, my, my wife is one of the escapees. They were called the Negurashim, people who just ran away from Spain. She, her family ended up in, in North Morocco, which was still under Spain. The Spanish conquered it later on, and a place called Tetuan in Morocco today. So you go to Morocco, you go to Tetuan. My family, my wife's family lived there for 500 years, Tetuan. Anyway, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Turkey. Turkey was the biggest colony of Spanish refugees. Greece, Egypt, Syria, Eretz Israel, and Sfat Tiveri, Yerushalayim. So they're really the first aliyah to Israel with the Spanish immigrants, which was good and bad. The good part was they came to Israel. The bad part was not enough people came to Israel. Israel was a barren wasteland. And we have, a, we have to thank, you know, the, what's her name? Gracia uh, Mendez, uh, Dona Gracia for buying land in Tiberia and Spat and colonizing, colonizing, uh, you know, these kind of these towns in Israel for Jews. So she was a great woman, Gracia, and uh, her nephew, uh, Donna Gracia and her nephew, they were conversos who ran away from Spain and eventually ended up in Turkey. Anyway, so good, Baruch Hashem. So that's the first big aliyah of Jews back to Israel were the Spanish Jews, but unfortunately went to other places as well. Our synagogue in Hanak Park was uh, Jews who went to Greece. Again, under, under the Ottomans at that time, 
So they were in Greece for 500 years. And then, thank God, they moved to, for them, they moved to uh, America and they escaped the Holocaust. Unfortunately, the Germans reached Greece. They took away all the Greek Jews, so the Auschwitz. Terrible, terrible, 1944, nearly. 1914, look at this, 1914, Germany enters the First World War on Tisha B'Av. This caused massive upheaval in Europe, caused massive upheaval to all the Jews in Europe and led to eventually the Holocaust. 1941, the 9th of Av, Heinrich Himmler formally receives approval from the Nazi party for the final solution. Tisha B'Av, Tisha B'Av, 1941, he gets this authority for the final solution. 1942, on 9th above, the mass deportation of Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto on route to Treblinka. Terrible. On the 10th above, the following events took place. 1994, the bombing of the Jewish community center in Buenos Aires. Question 1994, it's not so far away. 2005, Hitler Kut. This is, I mean, this is an Israeli government. This is under Sharon, who, you know, uh, has had this brilliant idea. We're going we're gonna to withdraw from Gaza. And what again? Return nothing. He didn't, he didn't get any agreements. Nothing in return, but what we got in return, we got rockets. So that was the Hitna took started on Tisha B'Av. Imagine Jews forgot the history. They start troubles on Tisha B'Av. They're old people. They're how many synagogues were dismantled? How many Jews were displaced? How much crying? How many tears? A terrible situation. And what do we get for it? Nothing. We got nothing out of it. Got bombs and, and wars. How many wars since then? Terrible. Okay, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back in time. And this is the famous Mishnah. Uh, this Mishnah is in Tanit, in 26a and 26b. Five things. I'm going to go back to the beginning of the three weeks. I'm going to work my way back. I'm going to go see what tikkunim we can make. What can we do to remedy the situation? Five things happened to our ancestors on the 17th of Tammuz, three weeks ago. The tablets were broken. Moshe Rabbeinu comes down, sees the Jewish worshiping the golden calf. He smashes the tablets. There were two tablets. We know there were two tablets. They were actually squares. They were not uh, rectangles. They were not round on top. They were, they were, you know, square on top. Okay. Number two, the continuous daily offering of the temple ceased. Number three, the walls of Jerusalem was breached. Number four, a posthumous burned the Torah. Whatever that means, we're going to see. Number five, a graven image was set up in the temple. Okay. Okay, those are five things that happened in the, on the 17th of Tammuz. But, Let's go through them very quickly and see what we can do for ourselves. What can we learn from that? First one offers us an insight into the dual nature of all things that break in our lives. The breaking of the tablets. On the one hand, a broken thing is not a positive experience. On the other hand, when something breaks, it's a signal, it's a symptom that warns us there's an underlying problem. Had it not cracked and broke, we would never know that we have damage that we have to repair. So the cracking, the smashing of tablets. Moshe was actually expressing the true nature of the people's relationship with God as a result of building the golden calf. Just like the tablet broke your relationship with God, you broke your relationship with God, and therefore I have to break the tablets. The tablets, the rabbis say, were signified the ketubah between us and God. They were the ketubah. They were the marriage contract between us and God. Moshe Rabbeinu says the Jews are not faithful. I'm going to smash the marriage contract. And Hashem agrees with him. And we get this famous word, Yishar Kochacha, which Ashkenazi made it into Yishakoach. Yishakoach, Hashem says, Moshe Rabbeinu, Yishakoach, you did the right thing. And this became Yishakoach, which we are very much used by Ashkenaz until today, even in Israel. Yishakoach, 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 it became diluted. Okay. So the breaking of the tablets was not the cause of the problems, it was the effect of the problems. 
Moshe Rabbeinu is telling us you broke your relationship with God, the tablets are broken. In doing so, Moshe Rabbeinu illustrates the cure. What is the cure? The cure is feel broken for your errors and you are on your ways to redeeming them. If you feel broken for your errors, Jewish people, you will redeem yourself. Nothing is as complete as a broken heart. That's one of the Hasidic things. Nothing is, is as complete as a broken heart. The first step to healing and growth is recognizing things are broken. And then when you're aware of that, you can start doing repentance and you can come back. That's why the broken tablets lay side by side in the ark. In the Arona Kodesh, you have the broken tablets, the rabbis tell us, and the whole tablets, side by side. Why? Because we need to remind ourselves all the time. The broken pieces remind us how we can easily break. Our relationship with God can easily break. It depends on us. We can have a whole relationship. The whole tablets, they symbolize the whole relationship between man and God. And the broken tablets symbolize a broken relationship between man and God. And to be first, you have to feel broken to be able to heal. So a person has to teshuva. Life breaks all people. But some are stronger in the broken places. I don't know. They tell you, I don't know if it's true or not. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a... They tell you that when a bone, a bone breaks and it heals, the heel is stronger than the actual other parts of the bone. I don't know if that's true. Ask your local orthopedist. I don't know. But if something breaks in one's life, because you get stronger and heal it. So the first root of trauma is when we break away from our ingrained innocence. When we betray our inner selves and wander away from our inherent connection to our divine image. As God asked Adam after the sin, where are you? I don't recognize you. I don't see your divine image. You have betrayed yourself. You have betrayed your essential self. But recognizing this fact helps us to renew the covenant between us and God. So that's the first event on the 17th of Tammuz. should wake us up that something is broken, but we have the power to fix it. Number two, the daily offering in the temple ceased on the 17th of Tammuz. The constants in our lives are those external experiences that are there for us even when everything else is lost. Once a constant has ceased, the end is near. There are many activities and services in the temple. The most enduring was called the tamid, which is constant. One of the constants in the temple was this twice daily sacrifice, and it ceased. And this constant, which we have in our lives as Jews, Shabbat, holidays, Yom Kippur, all these are constants in our lives. When these break, we're in big trouble. The temple's fate was sealed. So we all go through many fluctuations in our lives, up and down, but never allow a bad mood to stop one's good habits. One's good habits should continue all the time. So get into good habits. This is what it's telling us. Get into good habits. Don't let the good habits cease. Don't let this uh, daily offering cease. Our habits are good habits. Never, never miss a prayer. Never miss a, a mitzvah. Never miss you have these uh, things in your lives which are constants. Don't break the constants. Number three, city walls were breached. The wall around the city is only a wall. It protects our precious city. Our skin is like a wall around our body. It protects our vital organs. We build many walls in our lives to protect ourselves and our loved ones. Walls include small things we do for our beloved that may not be the essence of our relationship, but they express by far the deepest dimension of our relationship. The deepest love is, is not expressed in things that are required to do or ask to do. Not even things that our beloved alludes that you do, but in things that you do out of sheer desire to please. These are the optional walls that we build around ourselves to protect our relationships. Walls also may include special care we take to ensure our weak and blind spots do not get the better of us. So if a person is prone to signs of weakness, anger, uh, bad moods, a person's going to build walls. We have to build our walls. 
and the Romans destroyed the walls, and the Babylonians destroyed the walls. We have to learn to build the walls. Each of us has areas of weakness. We need to build the walls to protect ourselves. Areas of weakness. Never have our walls breached. So that's another root of trauma. Breach walls. So the cure, fortify the walls in our lives, uh, of our moods, and our midot, our traits. Uh, number four, apostles burned the Torah. Now, you know, we just witnessed this, uh, you know, they burned the Quran, and they wanted to burn Sweden, they wanted to burn the Torah. And finally, they said, you know, we're not going to burn, not going to burn the Torah. Baruch Hashem, this is a miracle. Hashem saved the Torah to be burnt again. So what does that mean? The Torah is a mandate God gave us, blueprint for life. Burning someone else's books is a desecration, often equal to burning the person themselves. In fact, the Romans burnt, says, who was the, who was the rabbi, the great rabbi, they burnt Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa. They, they took a Sefer Torah, they wrapped him in the Sefer Torah, and they burnt him with the Sefer Torah. So burning a Torah scroll is like burning the equivalent of burning a person, and they actually did both. So by burning our valuable books, we're burning our passions, our beliefs, our very identity. So it's our life and our sustenance, as we say. Kihem uh, the Torah is our life, the length of our days, and the Torah is our enduring link to our generations past, they're the ones who received it. They passed it on to us and to generations to come. So understand the root problem. Hold on to the Torah. Hold on to our book. Hold on to our heritage. That's the root. We have to know that when we burnt our Torah, we are also sometimes burning our Torah. If we burn our heritage, we are burning our Torah. We see many Jews today burning the Torah. They don't even know what they're doing. They're burning the heritage. They have no value for the heritage. We have to appreciate our heritage and get it strong. Number five, the Kramer energy. An idol was placed in the sanctuary. A true enemy would like to start at the heart of the adversary. When they teach you shoot, they teach you shoot at the heart. Shoot the heart, the other guy. It's a big area. And it's easier to shoot than the head. So every, each one of us has a very pure place in our heart and soul. If the adversary can put the idol in our heart and soul, what is, the, I, I, what is this adverse, what is this idol in our heart and soul? Any bad thoughts a person has? is the most delicate place that they have. The most treasured place we have is our mind. What the rabbis call the heart, it's really the mind. The most treasured, most precious place, most innermost place, sanctified person is their mind. Our thoughts that go into that mind are the idols sometimes we place in the mind. A person who has immoral thoughts, a person who has idolatrous thoughts, a person who has unethical thoughts, these are all idols in a person's mind. Customers put idol in the, in the sanctuary. We have to make sure we don't have idols in our sanctuary. That's what it's teaching us. Our sanctuary, our inner sanctuary, our mind should be clear and pure of foreign gods. By focusing on these five roots, we learn how to untangle multiple mess of symptoms that plague our lives in our lives of the sanctuary. Now, can imagine society. Okay, so let's just go now to the, to the night of Av. Again, the, the Mishnah says five things happen, the same thing, five things happen on the night of Av. Five things happen on the night of Av. It's like reliving the 17th of Tammuz all over again. So let's just uh, talk about what happened on the night of Av and, and tell us what the lesson is. Okay, it was the creed number one. It was the creed our parents would not enter the land of Israel. It was the creed the spies, but it we talked about. On the 29th of Sivan, Moshe sent out scouts to survey the land of Israel in preparation for its conquest 40 days later on. Teacher Bab, the Jews should have gone into Israel. Imagine, it would have been the heart, it, was, it would have been the happiest day of the year. Teacher Bab, eventually it's going to be the happiest day of the year. You know that? 
it's going to be the happiest day of the year. What do we do in our prayers? We skip Vidui, we skip Tachadun. There's no Tachadun Tishabah. It's very strange. It's, a, it's sad on the one hand, but it's also the happy. Why no Tachadun? We don't go, go down, Hashem go down their hands. The special prayer of pleading to Hashem. There's no pleading on, on Tishabah. Why? Because eventually it's going to be the happiest day of the year. It was originally made to be the happiest day of the year. The Jews would have gone into Israel and made a massive celebration, but unfortunately it turned into the saddest day of the year, but eventually it's going to be the happiest day again. And uh, so the 29th of Sivan, he sends the, the, the spies, the scouts, and they come back on the 9th of Av, and it becomes a night of tears and grief. It says the entire community rose in uproar, began to cry, the people wept that night, and God said to them, you wept that night for no reason. I will designate this night as weeping for generations. As the Quran says in Ta'ani 29a, Tishabah becomes the night and day when both temples are destroyed. Betar is vanquished and Jerusalem is plowed, as well as the final day for the Spanish Inquisition, the beginning of World War, World War I, as we talked about, and other events. What is the essence of this event? So some opinions say, why did they not want to go into Israel? Because in the desert, it was totally spiritual. The desert was totally spiritual. It's just living on the man. They're learning Torah all day. They have the best teacher in the world, Moshe Rabbeinu, they the Torah from heaven straight. They can see God. They can see, you know, they're not, you can't see God. You can see, you can see the clouds of glory. You can see the fire in the night. There's manifestations of God they can see. So they want to go into a physical land. Why, why should we want to go to Israel? We have a spiritual life over here. They didn't think that materialism can be made into spirituality. The sheer nature of materialism, they argued, is too corrupt and too selfish to be receptive to anything sublime. Not only can we not conquer it, this land consumes its inhabitants, which means the physicality will consume our spirituality. You know, they were right in a sense, because the Jews who lived in the land of Israel eventually got corrupted. They got corrupted by the original inhabitants who were left as thorns in their sides, as God predicts. They left as thorns in their sides and they worshipped idols. So on one side, they were, they were saying, you know, it's unre- unrealistic to think that we can be spiritual on a physical land. We can be farmers. We can be uh, blacksmiths and live in our land and be spiritual. It's unreasonable. And uh, but that was the mission. God's mission was, you're going to go into Israel. Israel is going to be a holy land. You're going to make it holy. You're going to be holy. You're going to make the land holy. So... The idea is to integrate spirit and matter. The idea of Judaism is a, it's a massive idea. People don't talk about it enough. Our mission in the world is to integrate spirituality and materialism. You want to be a doctor, be a spiritual doctor. We have both worlds. You want to be a dentist, be a spiritual dentist. You want to be an engineer, be a spiritual engineer. You want to be a rabbi, be a, make sure you're a spiritual rabbi. And you want to be, a, I don't know what, architect. All these things to be spiritual. Bring spirituality into your physicality. That's a, and that's why we say so many blessings every day. We pass the mezuzah. Ideas to bring the spirituality into the physical world. God says, "Go into Israel, make it holy." And then the spice says, "We can't make it holy. You can't integrate spirituality into physicality." I mean, and uh, we have to try and integrate spirit matter. No person has the right to question the possibility whether we can accomplish the mission. God gives you a mission. You can't think, you know, can I do it? Can I not do it? You have to do it. There's no choice in the matter. We have to do it. And we've given all the necessary tools to change the world and not be overcome by it. This is amazing. We had, imagine Joshua goes in and conquers the land. Unfortunately, he didn't conquer the entire land. He left pockets of Canaanites all over the place. And they eventually converted us to their belief system instead of us 
being strong enough to resist. Okay, that's what the that's what it's teaching us. That's what the spies are teaching us. God does not punish, God responds. The universe is one of cause and effect. You, the people, don't want to enter the promised land. You don't believe all my promises to you and your ancestors. You're overcome by fear. That demonstrates you are unable and don't deserve to enter the promised land. So that's that's amazing. They weren't allowed to enter. The whole generation had to die in the desert. All the men had to die in the desert. It is your own weakness and fears that projects and does not allow you to enter and conquer the land. As a result, this fear, this weeping for no reason will cause you to weep for generations neither to Shabbat. Okay, so we're not allowed to be scared. Jews are not allowed to be scared. We have God to rely on. We have to have total emunah, trust in God. Listen, if you live in Israel and you're surrounded by all these people who want to kill you, I'll tell you, you have to have emunah. There's no way if, if you can live here without emunah. Just walking on the streets. Every day, emunah, emunah, emunah. And uh, I believe in your God. You're my God. One God. I truly believe you can save me. And you're going to save me. And you will save me. And you saved us through the centuries. But there's another point over here I want to make is, unfortunately, is this, uh, we have to go to the promised land. This is the sin of the spies. The sin of the spies says, we'd rather live in exile. We'd rather live in, you know, go back to, you know, the two bad guys, Natan Aviram, Bittal Moshe. You took us out of the land of, of milk and honey. You took us out of Egypt. You took us out of the two the world. You took us out of this beautiful country, Egypt. Imagine saying that. The land of milk and honey to bring us into the barren wilderness. Well, the opposite is true. And that's something we have to, if you live outside Israel, think about how to make Aliyah. How can you make Aliyah? You know, my father, he would talk about it. He never did it, but he talked about it. But at least he had some effect on me, you know. At least he had some effect on me. So my father's dreams became my dream. And that's, at least we can do that. You know, that's what we say. Every, every after Pesach, after Seder, next year, Jerusalem, you can't be there this year, but this next year. Keep the dream alive. Keep the vision alive. Keep that yearning alive. It's very, very important. And it's a tikkun for the sin of the spies. It's a tikkun. The second temple, the first temple was destroyed. Okay, the first route is we have to make the, the physical spiritual. How do you make the physical spiritual? God says, build the temple. Build the first temple, and there you're going to see miracles around. The rabbi says, ten miracles happen. You want to see God go to the bed of the You can see God clearly. The smoke of the altar goes straight up, despite all the wind and the rain. Never went out. Fire never went out. Miracles. There was no flies in the temple, despite all the meat and everything. Um, there's so many miracles. You just go there, and you'll, you'll, you'll witness the face of the Kohen Gadol, spirituality, radiation of spirituality. You feel God in the temple. And that's one thing that we can't even appreciate. At least we can feel God. We have to try and feel God in, the, in our small temples, our synagogues. At least we can try and feel God when we go to the Bedevitash, the site of the waiting wall of the Kotel. If you go to the Kotel, at least try and feel where is God. I'm trying to feel God. So the presence of the Shekhinah never left the Kotel. The person goes to the Kotel, if you don't feel God there, don't go. Don't go. Just go. If you want to do it, go and try and feel God. Reach out to God and feel God. You know, the famous story, it's a beautiful story. It says, this is an Asia Torah story. Asia Torah is right there by the Kotel. There's an American, there's a Canadian actually, he says he went backpacking to Europe. When you're in the good old days, you go backpacking. And they tell him in Europe, what are you doing here? You're Jewish, go to Israel. He goes to Israel, ends up in a show and say, you're kibbutz in Haifa. And it's Yom Kippur, and he says, what are you guys going to do on Yom Kippur? Nothing. It's a regular day. We're going to have dinner, we're going to have lunch. It's a regular day. We're going to eat our pork and nothing. He says, I can't. I, can't. I, can't. I grew up with Yom Kippur. At least I go to Shul in Yom Kippur. He said, I'm going to go to Yushalayim. He goes to Yushalayim, Yom Kippur. He goes to the Kotel and he says, oh, God. He says, if you really exist, prove it to me. 
straight away feels a knock on his back. So the rabbi said, gosh, it must be you. He sees this little guy called Jeff Seidel, who's famous in Yerushalayim for picking people up at the Kotel. And Jeff Seidel says, would you like to come and break your fast with me in my house, in the, in the old city? And he goes and he ends up in Asia Torah and he becomes a, one of the rabbis of Asia Torah. Amazing story. But that is what a person should do with the Kotel, is look for God, look for the spirituality. And that should apply every time you go to shul, but even our mundane lives in their houses make up a room over there in the house, a spiritual room, or a room for meditation, a room for prayer. And uh, even our mundane, you know, even eating becomes holy. You know, plus there's a bracha before, a bracha after, try and uh, make everything we do. Shabbat is a great uh, holiness in time, an island of holiness in time. Amazing. So the first time was destroyed, this beautiful edifice, which was built by King Solomon, and renovated by the people later on. Time has Yawa Melech, Yoash. And uh, there's a bridge between heaven and earth, between spiritual and material. You take the physical and you transform it to spiritual. That's what a korban is. Taking the physical and transforming it to the spiritual. The first temple was con- con- compared to the first tablets, the work of Sadiqim that draws light downwards. And the second temple is like the second tablets, the work of body Shuvah, that's what we were. We initiate and raise that which is below upwards. The first temple was destroyed because of sins between man and God, the, the rabbis tell us. Shrine Yuma 9b. The second temple primarily because of baseless hatred, which we have talked about. In the split between heaven and earth, the first step is when we disconnect from God. If we disconnect from God, God disconnects from us. Whatever we do is we connect with God. We walk a, a step away from God. God says, you walk a step away from me. I'm going to walk a step away from you. And this way, we're going to be two steps away from each other. So everything we do has a repercussion in the spiritual world. Everything we do, Hashem mirrors. You give sadaqah, you get. Amazing. I've tried this. It works all the time. You give, you get. You give, you get. You give, you get. I had a friend of mine um, who we grew up together. And when he heard the rabbi, you know, rabbi would talk and he was... Uh, Go to Rabbi's speech at that time. He said, you know, uh, there's certain things that increase a person's wealth. Uh, number one is washing hands for bread with a lot of water. So, yeah, this guy, sure, he used a lot of water to wash his hands for bread. Another segula for a lot of money is giving sedakah. So he made sure he gave a lot of sedakah. And today he's driving his Rolls Royce. Okay, so, you know, this, well, this works. You give, you get, you, you, you reach out spirituality. Hashem says, you want spirituality, I'll give you spirituality. You want to understand my Torah, I'll help you understand my Torah. You want to get close to me, I'll help you get close to me. That's the idea. And that's the idea of the first bit of Mikdash, which unfortunately is we broke the rules. We broke away from God, God says, I break away from you. So what happens is, they go out to exile, only 70 years in exile, piece of nothing, cheered, a piece of cake, go to exile in Babylon, 70 years, and then they come back, Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah come back, it's, 40,000 Jews, that's it. 40,000 Jews go back to build the second temple, that's it. The vast majority of Jews stayed in Babylon, just like today. The vast majority of Jews stayed in Babylon. Actually, it's better today than what's that. The vast majority of Jews say, we'll stay in the superpower of the world, Babylon and the, and the Persians. The Persians are good to us. In fact, even the king of Persia was the son of Esther, a Jewish woman, and good to us. And in fact, the Persians helped us rebuild the temple. The second temple was rebuilt. The Persian helped from Esther's son, gave us money, whatever they took, the Babylonians took away from the temple, they gave us back, and more. They helped us to rebuild the temple. Anyway, the second temple 
work of Bale Tshuva. Bale Tshuva, why? Because the first temple is we're all religious. We built a temple with religiosity, and now they, 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 they broke the, the first temple, broke. We broke our relationship with God, now we're coming back with Bale Tshuva. We're going to build the second temple. It says the, back, the second temple was a, a small visage of the first temple. It was like a tiny part of it. The miracles that happened in the first temple never happened in the second temple. We never had the Arana Kodesh. We never had the Ten Commandments. They were hidden. It was hidden by King Josiah. The rabbis tell us in the Gemara, and we didn't have it in the second temple. The second commandments, you walk into the Holy of Holies in the second temple, all you would see is this stone. That's probably that's probably the place where the you know the, the Arabs built their, their dome, the mosque. It's not, it's not even the mosque. It's, a, it's the golden dome um, where there's a stone, a rock, a rock. The holy rock they have is really probably the rock where the ark was thirsting. Because that's all they saw. When you go into the Holy of Holies in the Second Temple, there's nothing there. Just a rock. That was the rock. So it's the foundation stone of the world, whatever it means. That's where the Arona Kodesh was meant, was meant to rest. So it's a small part of the First Temple's holiness. So the Second Temple was destroyed. It was the effects of the schism between matter and spirit that continued to deteriorate. And what we hear was our relationships with each other. Now, the first temple, what deteriorated was a relationship with God. The second temple was the deterioration of relationships with each other. And we're still going on. This is still going on today. Don't, don't think this has been fixed. Yeah, if it's fixed, the temple would have been rebuilt already. But it hasn't been fixed. We still don't get along with each other. And uh, husband and wives don't get along. Unfortunately, we have to really work on our relationships with our spouses. We really have to. Give in. If you give in, you're strong, you're not weak. If you give in, you're strong, you're not weak. Be the first to give in. Be the first to make peace. It's so hard. It really is hard. Try and smile and uh, be gentle and speak softly. Yeah, these are all persons got to know how to handle their spouse. They've got to know how to handle crisis in the family. Persons got to know how to handle their children. Children don't break away from their parents today. Children break away from their parents. They're not following the same path as their parents. And, uh, you know, one of the stories is one of the famous uh, atheists in Israel. I'm not going to say her name. She's a member of the, one of the previous governments. Very famous. She's anti-religious. Well, her son became religious. And she was devastated. And she said, why did you rebel against me? And he told her, he says, you rebelled against your parents. And I'm rebelling against you. So it's, you broke away from your religious parents. And I'm rebelling against you. So rebellion causes rebellion. We have to know how to get along with our children and our grandchildren. They'd rather show and be successful to pass down our heritage. And that was the second temple. Second temple was destroyed. Relationships, relationships, relationships. Brothers, sisters, siblings should get along. Parents and children should get along. Spouses should get along. Everyone should get along. Let's work on it. That's our schism today. That's where we're going. That's where we're at fault today. We're still in this period of the second temple destruction. Betar was conquered. Betar was the last fortress to hold out against the Romans during the Bar Kokhba revolt. Betar was a great city with tens of thousands of Jews and a great leader that considered a Shia for all the leaders of the time by Rabbi Akiva. When Betar fell to the Romans, all his residents were killed. It was considered as, as tragic as the destruction of the temple itself, Rabbi says. Hilchotani, chapter 5. Halakha 3. It was considered as tragic as the destruction of the temple itself. As long as the Betar stood, there was a remnant of hope that the temple's destruction could be reversed. In fact, Bar Kokhba started rebuilding the temple. People don't realize. He started, he put in foundation stones of the temple, which is why it became again after the Beit was destroyed and plowed over the temple. 
because there were stones there that Bar Kocha said. He was reversing, he thought, they thought he's going to be the Mashiach, he's going to rebuild the temple. Unfortunately, he didn't. Once it fell, 67 years after the destruction of the Second Temple, it sealed the fate of the people and broke our hope. And that's why Jews from that time became pacifists. Why? Because we saw they're revolting. It doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work. It never worked the Romans, unfortunately. Um, in psycho-spiritual realm, the fall of Beitar represents the next decline and a progressive breakdown resulting from the matter-spirit dichotomy. Beitar symbolizes the last stronghold within us that still allows for hope. Right? So a split between the body and the soul, between the physical and the spiritual. And uh, there should always be one last stand. That last stand was Beitar. Unfortunately, Beitar was smashed. That's last hope inside a person. The, the, the joy of the spiritual physical was smashed as well. Okay, so what that means is we must never, ever allow our last stronghold to fall. A Jew must always have hope. We live in hope. A tikva, we always live in hope. A We will kindle that hope and to a flame. We'll kindle this hope to a flame. It happened already. We will not lose this. Uh, we have a, Hashem gave us an opportunity again to rebuild this land. It's happening around us with all the troubles. And well, the city of Jerusalem was plowed over. The final breakdown is when the Romans, three years after the fall of Beitar, plowed the city of Jerusalem, completely leveling everything in the city, and then they rebuilt it with the amphitheaters and their cinemas, whatever. Of those days, they are theaters. And uh, it's amazing. I was in one of their theaters. They, they built just outside the Kotel, underground. They just found this massive amphitheater in the hall where the Romans would have their meetings. And then they had the Cardo, again, a Roman marketplace in the destruction temple. So the first temple is whatever was destroyed. The second temple was destroyed. Beta was destroyed. And lastly, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. Five things that happened. And uh, what is fascinating is this level of destruction. Is, it was plowed over like a field. Now, what's interesting is when you plow a field, you plow it in order to grow seeds. This is a message from God. The Romans plowed the field. Hashem says they're plowing the field. This is a message to you, B'nai Israel. They're plowing it for you to plant. That's what Hashem will plant in that field. So it's interesting. And this is, I'm going to end off with a story of Rabbi Akiva. The sages go and visit this plowed over field of Yishlaim. And all the great sages are crying and crying as uh, witnessing the destruction of Yishlaim, the destruction of Beda Mikdash. And uh, Rabbi Akiva is laughing. And they all turn to Akiva and they say, Akiva, why are you laughing? You're crazy. Are you mad? Everyone's crying. You're laughing. He said, I'm, you're, la- you're crying because you see destruction. I'm laughing because the destruction is over. And the next prophecy is in line. And that next prophecy is rebuilding. Destruction prophecies are, are complete, Baruch Hashem. They're complete. The Holocaust. Uh, hopefully, that's the last. That's it. That was Golga Magog. Ramon Hashrabi, the big Kabbalist said that was Golga Magog. We won't see this again in our life. We'll never see destruction. What we see now. We can look forward to rebuilding, but it still hasn't happened. And we have to do that tikkun of sinat hinam, undeserved hatred should be love and uh, getting along with each other. Let's start with the microcosms, our families, our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, our parents, and our brothers and sisters. Oh, and we're over time. Last class of the series. And forgive me, please. And Bezrat Hashem, we'll see you again. We'll meet again. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.